Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Forum for Democratic Candidates for U.S. Senate in Tennessee, hosted by Indivisible and broadcast by the Tennessee Holler. I'm Stephen Elliott, a reporter for the Nashville Scene and the Nashville Post. Uh, we're joined by three of the candidates seeking the Democratic nomination for Senate, uh, Robin Kimbrough Hayes, James Mackler, and Mark Pickrell. We're also hoping that Marquita Bradshaw will be joining later, uh, hoping that maybe there's some technical difficulties or something, but uh, crossing our fingers that she'll be able to join us as well. Um, I'll let them introduce themselves more fully in a minute. Uh, but these candidates will be on the primary ballot on August 6th. Uh, whichever one wins the primary will face the Republican nominee in November. Uh, this is the Senate seat currently held by uh, Republican Lamar Alexander, who's retiring. He's won um, each of his three terms with a comfortable margin over the Democratic uh, nominee. And the last time uh, Tennessee had an open U.S. Senate race was two years ago um, when Republican nominee Marsha Blackburn beat Democratic nominee Phil Bredesen. Um, well, now... We'll uh, we're now going to get the two minutes for an opening statement and if uh looks like marquita is trying to join but um we'll start um these these two minutes statements uh opening statements with robin um so you're good to go and make sure you unmute yourself Good evening and thank you, um, Stephen, and thank you, Indivisible, for having um, the candidates here tonight. I want to introduce myself again. My name is Robin Kimbrough Hayes, and I am running for the United States Senate. I grew up in a trailer park in Lexington, Kentucky, and the trailer park experience um, taught me a lot. It taught me how to make a lot out of a little and it taught me how to stretch resources and it gave me the drive to attend Fisk University and to attend Emory School of Law. After that, I answered a call to practice law in the public sector as an assistant attorney general for the Tennessee Attorney General's Office and as an associate general counsel for the Department of Children's Services. I spent over a decade of doing wonderful work at the Tennessee Coalition to End Domestic and Sexual Violence. There I advocated for laws for victims of domestic violence. Um, these laws um, related to um, gun violence, orders protection, and other legislation that sought to protect victims and hold batterers accountable. This was wonderful work um, that equipped me to go on to answer another calling. I answered a call to the um, to ministry in the United Methodist Church. So I'm an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, and I attended Vanderbilt School of Law. So I'm a lawyer, and I'm a chaplain. And as a lawyer, I'm equipped to be your United States Senator. I've drafted legislation, I've reviewed policy, and I've argued cases all across the state of Tennessee. And as a chaplain, I can speak to hurt, to anger, to pain, anxiety, um, especially as we face the challenges that we see in our nation today. And this is why I decided to run for United States Senate, because I want to change the culture of our nation. COVID-19 is hit 
And now we're in the midst of a a time in our history where people are fighting against systematic racism. And I believe I've been called to be here at such a time as this. And I know I can flip the seat. Thank you, Robin. And you'll get a you'll get a little bit of time at the end for a closing statement as well. Um, and next up is James, James Mackler. Thank you for having me here tonight. This has been an important week. I want to start by acknowledging the murder of George Floyd and the systemic racism that's brought us to this point. We can do better. We must do better. And we need leaders to say that black lives do matter so we can have conversations on how to heal these deep wounds. On this, and in so many ways, Washington is failing us. Since I launched my campaign at a closed rural hospital in McKenzie, three more have closed. And now Tennessee leads the nation in rural hospital closures per person. Opioids are ravaging our communities and there's no national solution. People aren't even talking about it. The trade war hurts our economy more than any other state. You add in COVID-19, and you can see a perfect storm gathering across Tennessee. People want change. Throughout my life, I've chosen service. After we were attacked on 9-11, I closed my law practice. I joined the US Army to do more in a time of crisis. I learned how to fly a Black Hawk helicopter and did that in Iraq. When I came back, I became a JAG officer working to protect survivors of military sexual assault and prosecute criminals. My very first job out of the Army was working with the Mine Safety and Health Administration because coal miners need justice and coal mining companies that put profits ahead of people need to be held accountable. I'm running for the Senate for the same reason I joined the Army. I'm stepping forward to serve and do more in a time of crisis. I'm an outsider, a veteran, a man of faith. I'm a different kind of candidate and I know we're not gonna solve our nation's problems with our leaders tweeting insults, with them denying the threat of climate change, busy looking for their next infusion of secret corporate cash and ignoring the needs of the people they're elected to serve. My wife and I want to raise our children in a country governed by courage, not by fear, where public education is a pathway to opportunity, where hard day's work earns a living wage, where access to health care is a right, and where access to women's health care is a right, where we're all free to live, love, speak, and pray as we choose. I look forward to the conversation. Thanks, James. Um, next, we'll go to Mark Pickrell. Um, you've got two minutes for an opening statement. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you to Indivisible for sponsoring this, and thank you for to Stephen for moderating it, and thank you for the, my fellow candidates for running in this race. I, I think that this is the best way that we can build a party for this state to solve problems, and so I'm glad that everybody here is on the same team trying to work in the same direction, and I would include myself there, obviously. Um, I'm a lawyer. I'm originally from East Tennessee. I was born and raised in Oak Ridge. I went to Harvard for college and I went to UT for law school. Uh, I'm an adjunct professor of law at Vanderbilt and I practice law here in Nashville for about a little more than 25 years. Uh, Most of my practice has been as an appellate attorney, particularly on the criminal defense side, but I also have a history of Voting Rights Act cases and Civil Rights Act cases, which is the reason why I was recently appointed to the Tennessee Advisory Committee of the US Civil Rights Commission. And I take that responsibility very seriously. Um, I'm an entrepreneur. Currently, I'm the chief administrative officer of a medical device startup patenting or using some patented technology out of Johns Hopkins and Vanderbilt um, and trying to bring that technology to market. My platform is focused on economic issues because I believe that we have created 
serious economic instability and unfairness in our system, which I think underlies all of our social problems. And so my campaign is focused on trying to address and solve what I think are very long-standing economic issues in our country. I hope that you will support one of these candidates, that you find somebody that you can support, and that, that whoever ends up being our, our nominee taking us into battle in November, that everyone here will be supporting that candidate. And I thank you for listening. Thanks, Mark. Um, and it looks like we've got Marquita Bradshaw here. Um, if you want to give a two minute opening statement. Thank you. Hi, I'm Marquita Bradshaw and I'm a first time candidate. No intentions ever to be running in any elected office because I was so involved in organizing in my community. I grew up down the street from a military landfill where there were a lot of chemicals that killed people and also made them sick. This is where I got started and get, getting involved in the political system more than voting, organizing door to door in my community and it grew into a career where I was a union organizer and a community organizer for many nonprofits. I am running on an environmental justice platform. Hardworking families across Tennessee need healthy and safe communities where they live, learn, work, worship, and work, recreate. And we do that by strengthening the three pillars, the environment, the economy, and also high quality education for all hardworking families in Tennessee. I'm a mom of a 25 year old and I am a caregiver for elderly adults and I'm a nonprofit consultant. All right, thank you, Marquita. Um, now we're gonna move into questions um, and you'll have 90 seconds to respond to each. Uh, we're gonna try to wrap the questions up around um, 7.15 Central so that you have some time for closing statement at the end. Um, if, a, if another candidate does directly mention you in their answer, then we'll give you a brief, uh, a brief chance for a response. Um, otherwise, we'll just keep moving. Um, so I think it seems appropriate to start with the wave of civil unrest over police brutality. Um, and, and so this first question, I'll start with Robin again, and then we'll cycle through on, on subsequent questions. But um, what do you think Congress should do to address the underlying concerns of protesters for, for Robin? And, and you're still muted. Thank you. That's a really good question. I think we're at a pivotal time in our nation really to address systematic racism. Um, this problem has been going on a really long time since slavery. So the, 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 the quick answer to this is that we need to pass legislation to address reevaluating the quali qualified immunity. So there are three senators, there, there, there are three senators who put forth this legislation in, in, in Congress, and there are additional senators that have signed on to address this issue of qualified immunity. 
Second, um, the anti-lynching statutes legislation needs to be passed. So Rand Paul has stalled that, but we need to make sure these pieces of legislation are passed. Thirdly, we need to implement President Obama's um, task force plan of the 21st century to address policing in our communities. And we need to have open dialogue and action to break the cycle of hate. We need to be in conversations that we can honestly discuss what is the, the racial tensions in, in our country. I'm a mother of a son, he's 18, and I'm afraid to let him drive because I'm afraid he's gonna end up like George Floyd. We need a person that can address the hurt, the fear, so we can move on toward healing from this issue in our country. And I have the set of skills to do that. Thank you, Robin. Uh, James, uh, the same question. Uh, what do you think Congress should do to address the underlying concerns of the protesters? We must stop murdering black Americans this second. We must stop black Americans from being murdered. Now there's a lot of work to do to start addressing how racism impacts every other aspect of our society. And it does in health outcomes, in economic outcomes, in education outcomes, in every single aspect of our society. Just take a moment to look at the disparities in criminal justice. Just look at the lengths the president is willing to go through to exonerate his friend, Michael Flynn who pled guilty to treason for colluding with a foreign adversary. The president of the United States is arguing on Michael Flynn's behalf. Compare that to the experience of my clients caught up in the federal criminal justice system. They're facing rigid sentencing guidelines and mandatory minimums for nonviolent offenses. I was their only voice in the courtroom. The president's first step act was only a first step. We have a lot of work to do to heal the wounds that have been here for a long time. And that starts the second black American stopped being murdered. Thank you. Um, Mark, the, the same question to you. Uh, what do you think Congress should do to address the underlying concerns of protesters? Uh, first and foremost, I think we must demilitarize the police. Um, from my perspective, the question isn't just, should we stop? Everybody, I think, agrees that we should stop the un, uh, horrible uh, killing of African-Americans in this country. Um, but the question is, how do you get how do you get the police to do that? And I think when we have trained police to be military people first and, and public servants second, and when we arm them with SWAT vehicles and semi tanks and long guns, what we're doing is creating the environment for police to think that they are more soldier than police officer. Um, the rest of my career about as being a criminal defense attorney, I have fought for the, for improving the criminal justice system. I have some of the most important cases when it comes to improvements for the criminal justice system that exists in the federal system for our circuit. Um, and so I, I will always continue that work. But I think most I think step one has got to be to demilitarize the police. And and in the end, I actually feel bad that I spoke before Ms. Bradshaw, because I think it, it, this has to start with each of us listening, particularly those of us who are white. We need to listen to African-Americans. Um, and so I'm glad that Ms. Hayes spoke before me. Uh, I kind of regret that Ms. Bradshaw uh, did not speak before me, but I look forward to hearing what she has to say. All right, well, uh, let's hear from uh, Marquita. Well, I, I'm the only one that's not a lawyer here and actually been on the front lines organizing with people um, since 2014 on police accountability. 
um, the first thing you have to do is listen. Um, how can you serve if you don't listen first? There are things that people have been working on since 2014, since the death of Mike Brown and the verdict of that. Uh, and some of those things, some of the some of the, my colleagues have mentioned before. But this is all about creating healthy and safe communities. And it's not just about racism in the criminal justice system. We have to take a step back. It was racism that brought me into this process beyond voting. And it was racism in the environment, how we were disproportionately experiencing pollution. And so it's racism in the criminal justice system. It's racism in the medical uh, system. It's racism that's laced throughout American system. And that's what the protesters are bringing forth. It's, it's, yes, it started with George Floyd this time, but it was many names before then. And it was all about the use of force continuum not being uniform across all 50 states. You have so many different rules and especially around body cameras and different things like that, that it's not consistent. And so we have to make it consistent when it is affecting more than one person in one state and racism is. And so that means that we need to have a national force of continuum. We need to demilitarize the police and move towards community policing models and really listen to what people are saying and really work hard to eradicate racism from all of our systems throughout the American culture. Thank you. And I, I want to follow up on uh, something that a couple of you guys mentioned. Um, how specifically could lo the local, state, and federal response from both law enforcement and uh, elected bodies like city councils, how could uh, that response to the the protests themselves be improved? Uh, and, and we'll start with James on that one. Uh, you're, you're muted, James. My question is really, why are we even talking about the limited amount of violence surrounding these protests when the commander in chief is tear gassing Americans for a photo opportunity? Threatening to put the full force of U.S. military on civilian streets makes about as much sense as defunding the World Health Organization. It's dangerous and it's wrong. I've been deployed to a combat zone. I know what that means. Um, yes, bad people need to be caught. And I, I thank everyone who helped identify and arrest the man responsible for setting Nashville's courthouse on fire. He wasn't part of the peaceful and lawful demonstration against the murder of George Floyd and the system, systemic racism against Black Americans. Uh, our right to free speech is an obligation to speak up when our government lets us down. And with the murder of George Floyd and systemic racism, Black Americans continue to face, it is letting us down. So we have to raise our voices and cast our votes. We have to win elections. Uh, we can address these other things later, but at this point, let's not lose sight for a moment of the fact that the President of the United States used tear gas and rubber bullets on peaceful protesters. That's the violence we should be discussing at this moment. Okay, uh, Mark, um, the question's to you. How could the local, state, and federal response to the protests themselves be improved? Well, here I'm spe specifically gonna limit my answer to the protests because the violence is not the protests. The looting is not the protests. 
peaceful protest, a peaceful, peaceful assembly is a core right. It's important for everybody to exercise. And most importantly here, where we are trying as a community to come together and to support uh, people like George Floyd, who have been the subject of uh, police brutality, it's important that we all come together and continue to support those peaceful protests. I will use local examples of other cities where the police have walked with the protesters, other cities where the police have kneeled with the protesters, other cities where there have been sufficient forces to make sure that peaceful protests do not get drowned out by a, by a few hooligans, which will really dilute and hurt the message of social change that we need to hear. And so, and then at the federal level, I'm not going to discuss it. James has covered it. Thank you. Okay, uh, Marquita, how could the local, state, and federal response to the protests be improved? Well, first of all, none of the federal, state, or the local law enforcement agencies have been trained properly to actually manage peaceful protests. They are usually called in for crisis situations and after things happen. And so they do not know how to do that. And we do have to reflect on American history when we look look at the first people that did our a protest at the Boston Tea Party. They destroyed goods. And also we have to look at that as an example. If you look at how some people are taking advantage of the situation here now because there are many peaceful pro protesters. And if you look at in history, when Martin Luther King says, riot is the language of the unheard for paraphrasing for, for time, you have to reflect in history on how people have the right to be able to air their grievance to the government. And right now we are dealing with systematic racism all throughout our system. And it's an opportunity to have healthier and safe communities, even for African-Americans and Blacks. Okay, thank you. Uh, Robin, um, you have uh, 90 seconds. How could the local, state, and federal response to the protests be improved? When you asked the question, I thought about the scene. I saw the news where a Black news reporter was arrested and the white reporter was not arrested. Again, I believe the way in, in some ways where this has been handled, it again sheds the light on the fact that we need to work on this problem with policing. I also would emphasize that there's just like was said, there are some police who actually participated um, with the march. And I think this is a good example of dial a dialogue um, starting and relating and building relationships. I think to work out this problem of systematic racism, we're all gonna to have to work together. Allies are good, but we really need accomplices. We need somebody that's gonna be in the struggle with us and to fight with us and not talk about it just when it's convenient or comfortable. We need to be able to talk about race even before the George Floyd killing. Because before George Floyd, we had Trayvon Martin, we had Eric Gardner, we had Michael Brown. 
and 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 but but this time with, with watching and st out st standing for eight minutes and I believe 38 seconds today after the eulogy of Al Sharpton, a man need knelt on a man's neck for that long and killed him. And it took George Floyd's lynching to make us really face the truth about our country. And we're gonna need leadership that's willing to speak to this, to act to it in a way that will bring us together as a country and not divide us as a nation as President Trump wants us to be divided. We're better than that. We're one nation under God and indivisible. Thank you. Um, so the protests have in large part crowded uh, COVID-19 out of the news, but uh, health officials say it remains a serious public health threat. How should Congress react uh, to the joint economic and health crises? Uh, and how do you rate their response so far? Uh, this, this one will start with Mark. Uh, we've, we've been as a family in self-isolation for over 10 weeks now. So, um, it, it's interesting from my perspective, I think that the science on this has gotten dramatically better from the beginning of this, um, toward the end. Uh, I do not think that, 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 uh, in the middle of a crisis, you start trying to figure out, uh, what, how you're supposed to do better, um, and who, who did what wrong. And so ultimately I think we're doing the following things, right? which is trying to be cautious when we don't know what the science is on getting people healthy. Um, I think that we have to make sure that we support people economically. So the PPP and other programs that we have to make sure that employees maintain to have a connection to their work and that small, business can, small businesses can maintain their uh, function in society is an important step that, that Congress has taken. I think it's extremely important that they have done so. Um, and then now we have to figure out how to transition out of this. And so I think everybody is trying to figure out different ways. If you look at Sweden, the cost is very high uh, to, to, to having no self-isolation or societal separation. Um, but there's also great price and in, including health, health prices to not uh, ha having in, any, uh, um, to having too much of, of self-isolation. So in the end, it looks to me like right now the best path is to protect those those uh, of us who have comorbidities and to support uh, us in, in our ability to, to remain in self-isolation as we slowly open up both economically and educationally uh, throughout our society. And so this is one of those areas where I, I would rather not engage. And I think it's detrimental to engage in a whole lot of finger pointing. There'll be plenty of time for that later. But right now I have a lot of hope. I think that we're headed in the right direction uh, as a city and as a state and hopefully as a country, um, and I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Marquita, um, how should Congress react to the joint economic and health crises, and how do you rate their response so far? Well, I, respect, I, I rate their response very poorly because there are still people experiencing gaps right about now, um, especially low-income workers and workers who have who are part of the gig economy. They have not seen any help from from um, Congress uh, as of yet. So when we talk about COVID-19, we have to talk about why the economy was not working for hardworking families in the first place. You have to have health care that's patient centered, 
that's affordable and accessible for all, where it meets people where they are and remove the barriers where they can participate fully in healthcare. No one is talking about patient-centered healthcare, but they are talking about healthcare for all. I'm the only candidate talking about that because I know how important that is in order for our economy to work for everybody. You can't separate healthcare from economy. It goes hand in hand. And in order for it to work for hardworking families, to create healthy and safe communities, we have to have healthcare that works for everyone. Just imagine if we would have had a primary care system where everybody had access to it. The alarm would have sounded long ago before Congress, and we would have had opportunities to be able to mitigate the losses that have been so far. 100,000 people, it's just too much. And waiting on months and months for Congress to act, that's too long. They say Wall Street's three out, three, three times within 48 hours. But when it came to working people, it's one time and they couldn't do it again because they can't get on the same page for hardworking families. Thank you. Uh, Robin, um, how should Congress react to the, these joint crises and how do you rate their response so far? The response so far has shown that what the Senate majority has prioritized in our country are big businesses and not people. If for the priority of our national leadership, including Donald Trump, we're in the right place, 40 million people would not be out of work right now. And we would not have the number of cases that we have with COVID-19 if COVID-19 were taken seriously at the get-go. COVID-19 has shed the truth that we have not, that, that, that the country have not has not provided adequate health care and has and has not protected or eliminated or addressed health disparities among brown and black communities and also it has revealed the truth that we have not that the country has not taken care of laborers right now there are several people that still have not received their unemployment check as a result of this stimulus packet we have got to prioritize people and not politics. We have got to stop yanking at the strings of people's religion, their faith, to get them to go back into the water. If you ever watch Jaws and they caught the first shark and the man said, no, that's not the shark, but the mayor kept telling people to go back in the water. We need an honest leader that's gonna tell people to stay out of the water because the shark is still in the water. Thank you. Lastly, we'll go to, to James. How do you rate Congress's reaction to COVID-19 and, and what do you think they should do? Uh, you're, you're on mute. We should, we're right to expect Congress to exercise its required oversight role. Leadership means being prepared for a crisis, hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst. And it means putting the people you're elected to serve ahead of your own well-being. We have lost too many people to this pandemic, and I worry we're going to lose more. Let's remember, we're running against Bill Haggerty for this U.S. Senate seat. And he is the only candidate in the entire country who's serving on the White House COVID-19 task force. 
Bill Haggerty just held a campaign fundraiser featuring Art Laffer, the inventor of trickle-down economics. He also made a racist comment calling minimum wage the Black Teenage Unemployment Act. They are both on the White House COVID task force, and they offered inside information to their big donors in exchange for contributions, information that we all need in exchange for campaign donations. That's the company Bill Haggerty keeps, and those corporate special interests want him in the Senate to be their rubber stamp. He's not an independent voice now, and he won't be in the Senate. Bill Haggerty's friends at the bank gave him a multi-million dollar line of credit, and small businesses were waiting in line during this crisis. He went straight to the front of the line, and he's going to use that money to run TV ads saying exactly what they want him to say. Haggerty's even being investigated for taking, or I should say Bill Haggerty's even taking money from senators being investigated for insider trading off COVID without the press so much as reporting about it. You know, we can do so much better and we'll win this open Senate seat when everyone wanting change joins the team to make it happen. Thanks. Um, so we, we also took some questions from viewers and a, a few different people submitted questions about Medicare for all, which a couple of you guys uh, hinted at in the last answer. So um, we'll start with Marquita. Um, do you support a single payer system like Medicare for all? Uh, why or why not? I absolutely support a single payer system that's patient centered, where the patient controls how the dollars goes and everything is based on removing barriers for people to participate fully in receiving high quality health care. Okay. Um, Robin, uh, do you support a single payer system? You know, what, why or why not? I absolutely do support a single payer system, Medicare for all. And the reason why I support this is because I believe everybody should have access to health care. For many years, I was a single mother. And during one point in our journey, my job did not provide dependent care health insurance. So I had to pay out of pocket for my son's special medication before I shopped out premiums. His medication costs $275. I was able to, through a clearinghouse, I even tried to see if I was eligible for 10 kids, but I was able through a clearinghouse to get insurance and I had to pay out of pocket premiums for my children. I've managed to get another job which, which had employee-based insurance which took care of my children. No one should have to work three jobs or work themselves to death to live. No one should have the burden to have to choose between going to the doctor or worrying about a financial responsibility. 40 million, over 40 million people have lost their jobs to COVID-19 and they've lost their health care. If we had a Medicare for all single payer system, these persons would only just have to worry about how they were going to eat. Now they have to also worry about how they're going to live. This is why I support Medicare for all, a single payer system. Okay, James, uh, do you support a single payer system? Why or why not? Access to health care is a right. Nearly 1.3 million Tennesseans have a pre-existing condition. And the McConnell-Trump lawsuit to take their coverage away 
has gone all the way to the Supreme Court. Since I launched my campaign at a closed rural hospital in McKenzie, there have been three more rural hospital closures and Tennessee leads the nation in closed rural hospitals per person. People seeking treatment for opioid addiction are denied it because they don't have health insurance and instead we treat them like criminals. Add in COVID-19 and there is a perfect storm gathering in Tennessee. Tennesseans have a choice in this election between someone stepping forward to serve in a time of crisis who will work to improve healthcare or a rubber stamp for the very same people trying to take it away. Um, Mark, do you support a single payer system um, like Medicare for all? Why or why not? I do support opt-in for Medicare for all. Um, the, the phrase single payer system is a bit ambiguous and some people mean by it that private insurance is all outlawed and some people mean opt-in for Medicare. And so that's why I just say that my position is, is that everyone should be able to opt into Medicare. I also think that we should maintain uh, voluntary access to the Affordable Care Act plans. And I also think that we need to make sure that we have uh, portability across state lines and uniform treatment for, regardless of pre-existing medical conditions for some higher deductible health insurance plans. By giving people different options and making sure that everyone has the ability to ultimately opt into Medicare, we can guarantee that we have the greatest healthcare coverage uh, among the population possible. And different people have different situations. And so we really need to have a, a system that will, will address all those situations. Um, and you know, ultimately, when you look at other nations that have various models, I do think the one where you can opt into uh, a uniform state system, but also can supplement that with insurance, you have different insurance regulations, is the best way to get the maximum coverage and the, and the best way to get maximum health care rather than simply health payments. And so ultimately, I, I believe in a three-phase approach. It's on my website. Um, it's been on my website from day one, and that includes opt-in to Medicare. Um, but for those people who want to outlaw private insurance, I'm in disagreement with them. Okay, and a, a sort of a follow-up to that question, um, whether the Senate remains in Republican control or not, how do you propose getting your favorite health care bill or any other legislative priority passed um, in the case of uh, Republican control? Uh, we'll start with Robin. That's a really good question. And I think the answer to that is that you got to keep fighting and you've got to build collaborations with, within, the, within the Senate. And you've got to tell your stories and reach across these lines because I believe everybody knows someone who has been without health insurance and can understand the life and death situations with that. So I, I am a person who is tenacious and who will um, continue to fight um, for others, um, no matter how difficult the situation is. And that's what kind of leader it's gonna take to go against um, the Senate. But my prayer is that uh, we will flip this seat and we will again, take the majority in the Senate. And we don't have much to, we, it, it won't take a lot to do this, we're almost there. So I believe that to get my legislation passed, I'm going to work with others who are already on these bills and I'm going to advocate, I'm going to fight and I'm going to educate because I think that's one of the problems why people do not support Medicare for all single payer because they don't have enough information about it. And that is something that I will do as your United States Senator. 
Uh, James, we'll go to you next. Uh, if the Senate remains in Republican control, how do you propose getting your you know, favorite health care bill um, passed? I am all about accomplishing a mission, working with my team to get a mission done. Now, we're going to win and we're going to flip this Senate seat. But the fact remains, it is always going to require a degree of compromise to get things done in the United States Senate. My experience in the military has taught me you work with the people around you to get your job done. I don't have any idea whether the people that served with me in that helicopter, the person next to me, whether they were Democrat or Republican, the people behind me, whether or not they were conservative or liberal, we had a mission to accomplish and we worked together to get that mission done. That's what it's going to take. You know, um, fixing our healthcare system is the most important issue in this campaign. And Mitch McConnell has done everything he can to undermine the Affordable Care Act, trying to repeal it, now funding a lawsuit to take it away during a pandemic. If Bill Haggerty is elected, he'll help him to do it. The fact is, sound bites aren't going to fix any of these problems. They're not going to fix health care. Sending me to Washington will. We need to allow the government to negotiate drug prices. We need to fix the Affordable Care Act. And if our gerrymandered supermajority in Tennessee won't expand Medicaid, we need to do so in Congress. You know, a principle of my faith and our shared faiths is that just because you can't solve a problem entirely doesn't relieve you of the obligation to take the first steps to try. And that's what I'm going to do when I'm going to, when I'm in the United States Senate. I'm going to listen to what families need, and I'm going to take those steps to bring the change that we all desperately need to make better lives for our families. Uh, okay, Mark, um, if the Senate remains in Republican control, how do you propose getting your favorite health care bill passed? Well, this answer is actually a follow on to my prior answer. Um, I believe that the key to working with the Republican voters in the state who are necessary to win this state, the state and to win the seat um, are also similar to the Republicans who are in the Senate that you have to work with to solve problems. And that's why everything on my economic platform that's on my website, including my proposals regarding health care, are intended to be able to get support across a wide range of political spectrums and ideology. So if we go in and we say, look, we're going to outlaw private health insurance, we will lose. But if we go in and we say, look, there are three ways and they're very different that can help different people have access to health care, opt into Medicare, not voluntary ACA plans and then high deductible plans with appropriate safeguards for, for people, then what you end up is, is finding common ground with Republicans, ex, ex, expanding health care for all, and making sure that the safety net exists for those who need to opt into Medicare. And so my answer about why I have three approaches to, to health care and my answer to the question about Medicare and single payer is actually related to the, to the question about how do you, how do you uh, solve problems when Republicans control the Senate? And the answer is finding common ground. And that should be our job. And I would encourage every Democrat here, every Democratic candidate and every Democratic voter to ask themselves, what am I doing to find common ground with people across the political spectrum? Because that's the only way we're going to solve problems. And so the answer to my first question is really the answer to my second. Thanks, uh, Marquita. Uh, now to you. How, how do you propose to get uh, your favorite health care bill passed? Well, there are Democratic principles, and there are Republican principles, and then there are American principles. My core message of healthy and safe communities resonates with American principles, and healthcare is an American principle for all. And working with people across the aisle is not anything new to me. 
because I have worked in coalitions around the environment where we've had to talk to Republicans and Democrats. And it wasn't about Amer it wasn't about Republican or Democrat. It was about what was American. And so I don't have to change my language when talking to Republicans. They understand patient-centered. They understand removing barriers so people can participate fully in the medical system without going bankrupt. They understand those things. And so that's how it's going to get done is because it's a a core American principle to have healthy and safe communities where people live, learn, work, worship, and recreate for hardworking families. Thank you. Um, we had several more viewers ask about the general election, uh, given Democrats' struggles in recent statewide elections here. Uh, how specifically are, are you positioned to beat the Republican nominee? And, and we'll start with James on this one. You know, um, there's a lot of work to do to keep Tennessee from sending another rubber stamp like Marshall Blackburn to the Senate. That's why I got into this race early. Tennessee is in a crisis. We've discussed this. Three more hospitals have closed since I launched my campaign at the hospital in front of McKenzie. The opioid epidemic is ravaging our communities. The trade war hurts us more than any other state. With COVID, there's a perfect storm gathering in Tennessee, and that means people want change. My track record of service resonates with voters all across the state. We're building the team, we're raising the money to make sure that story is told. Now, it's no secret, I've never added air to TV ad. I'm not as well known as uh, some of the Republicans, but I got in this race early to travel the state listen to what Tennesseans need and are not getting from Washington. What we need now is for everyone to go to jamesmackler.com, sign up, volunteer, donate what they can, because we will win this open seat when everyone who wants change joins the team to make it happen. Mark, um, how, how would you win a general election against the Republican nominee? By finding common ground and by being able to be uh, understood by the voters of Tennessee, and particularly those swing Republican voters. Every Democrat, and I said this in my previous answer, so I'm sorry if I'm repeating, but it does tie in once again to my previous answer. We have to have a game plan for convincing some Republicans to vote for us in November. And that's why I think on a policy front, you have to provide common ground. The fact is, is and we've seen this since the Tea Party rose up, there are a lot of dissatisfied and disaffected Republicans in the state. As a party, the Republican leadership has failed their own voters. You're talking about health care. They ran for eight straight years on getting rid of the Affordable Care Act. Now then, once they had the chance in the Senate and the House and the presidency to get rid of it, they didn't. And, that's a, and that has created a wellspring and a well, a dissatisfaction among Republicans. And so the question is, is how can we as, as candidates Get to those voters and say, look, you've been failed by your own party, but let's let's we're, let's see where we agree on things, because if you can come with us and go into the and we will support those areas where we agree with you about the solutions to the problems that our country faces, then we can start to convince them that they might be willing to cross the aisle and vote for us. And then finally, you have to be able to have the connection with them to understand them, uh, to to treat them with respect and dignity, because you cannot denigrate them, and then expect to get their vote. And so it's about finding common ground. It's about being civil and respectful and solving problems. 
And if we can do that, then we can turn the seat around. But that's the only way, in my opinion, that we can turn the seat around. Thank you. Marquita, how, how would you win the general election? The best way to win a general election is using good old fashioned organizing principles. There are more non-voters in this state than there are Republicans and Democrats combined. People have not been participating in the process on a Democratic primary. Um, I say maybe 138,000 have probably stopped participating since 2008. When I looked at the numbers, I looked at the pathway to victory was organizing with good old fashioned core American principles that include everyone, including black Americans and addressing the disparities that people are having to make investments that would benefit all of Tennessee when it comes to making healthy and safe communities for hardworking families where they live, learn, work, worship and recreate. That is a core principle that people identify with. They identify with being hardworking. They identify wanting high quality education. They identify with having an environment full of integrity that has a just transition away from pollution. And they identify with an economy that works for hardworking families that raise the minimum wage and creates an index where it reviews every year and increases to make a sustainable wage so you can stop playing politics with people's lives and move forward where we can have health care for everyone so our economy can thrive. We need to get past surviving in Tennessee and moving towards thriving to having healthy and safe communities. And you can read more about my platform on MarquitaBradshaw.com. Thanks, uh, Robin. Um, you know, what, what puts you in position to beat the Republican nominee in a general election? As I said before, I'm a lawyer and a chaplain. As a lawyer, I've drafted policy, I've reviewed legislation, and I've argued cases all across Tennessee. And as a chaplain, I can handle anger, um, fear, anxiety, um, that people face as different legislation and laws are passed that impact their, uh, impact their lives. And I believe this is an important voice to bring to the table because it stretches beyond, stretches beyond partisan lines. It, talk, it speaks and empathizes with the space of people. We need someone to run, to run in this race who's going to energize people to get out and vote. We need someone who's going to bring the party together. Because when the party comes together, I believe we can be a formidable force against the Republican nominee. I am so glad I'm in this race because I bring the skills, the expertise, and the energy to flip this seat. I know I can beat the Republican nominee, whoever it is. As we organize, we're going to have to inspire people to get out to vote. We're going to have to give people a reason to come out to vote. We cannot run with the same horses. We've got to do something new and different because our society is changing. We need a voice that is going to calm, the, our, our, to calm our people and to bring people together again as one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Thanks. Um... We've got a question here from Rick Heron with the Sunrise Movement. Um, 
he says the Green New Deal framework has completely reshaped and reoriented the discussion of climate and environmental policy in our nation's politics. It arguably dominated the discussion of climate and environmental policy in the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. Do you support the Green New Deal? And if so, which specific Green New Deal policy goals do you think would be most beneficial to Tennessee? And we'll start with uh, Mark on this one. Yeah, when it comes to the problem of climate change, the, the major contributor obviously is fossil fuel burning. And so that aspect of the Green New Deal and those aspects of the Green New Deal that are directed towards reducing our dependency on fossil fuels, I think is extremely important. Uh, the platform that I have on, uh, on my website with regard to fossil fuels is, and this is similar to the last question you had about how do you find common ground with Republicans? Most Republicans are really concerned about the deficit. We tried with the carbon tax and we've been trying with the Green New Deal to convince a majority of Americans to take climate change seriously and to take painful steps to address it. And so far they haven't been willing to do it. And so the question is, is how can you, particularly if the Republicans maintain control of the Senate or um, as, you can, as you deal with these problems going forward, how can you combine an idea that will be attractive to the Republicans that will nonetheless help and actually help to solve and address the problem of climate change and global warming? And that's why on my platform, I, I say that we should link the level of our fossil fuel taxes to the level of our, of, of our um, deficit so that you can get Republican support for the idea, but also so that you can have an increasing mechanism that if we aren't responsible economically, then we will at least be solving a bit of the problem of climate change. And so that is the aspect of, of environmental regulation that I think is doable and will have the biggest impact for reducing global warming going forward. And so that's why it's on my platform. Thank you. Okay, uh, Marquita, um, do you support the Green New Deal? If so, which specific uh, policy goals of the Green New Deal do you think would be most beneficial for Tennessee? The Green New Deal is most beneficial for Tennessee because the environment is tied to people's health. The health of the environment is tied to people's health. The health of our air, water, and soil is tied to the economic health of how many farmers we have in the state of Tennessee. Our the right type of investments to rebuild old infrastructure, um, to remove lead piping from houses and water systems throughout Tennessee. Those are the investments that we need for in order to have healthy and safe communities. Also, the just knowing that we can invest into the in ingenuity of renewable energy in order to be able to save not only the health of the earth, but people health. And we have to tie people health to the environment health. And so the Green New Deal is a core American principle that people will learn more about how we can work hard to have healthy and safe communities by making those investments that create the ingenuity and creativity for upcycle, recycle, reuse in a system where we can be able to have an environment that we can live in comfortably and not get sick and die. Look at my community down the street from a landfill full of weaponized viruses, 
munitions and different things like that, you cannot just throw things away. It comes back in the environment because of reciprocity. And so the Green New Deal is the reciprocity we need for the state of Tennessee to have healthy and safe communities where we live, work, worship, and recreate. And you can go to my website and learn more about the principles that I'm running on and how to get involved with my campaign. Okay. I've been okay. all over the state, not only talking about the Green New Deal, the economy, the environment. Thank you. Um, I think, uh, let's see, Robin, uh, do you support the Green New Deal? And if so, which specific policy goals in the framework do you think would be most beneficial to the state? I support the Green New Deal. And the part that is very important, which has already been mentioned, is the use of renewable energy. I believe the Green New Deal will address issues of environmental racism and address issues of environmental injustices that have had a huge impact on poor communities, especially black and brown communities. The most beneficial component of the Green New Deal for the state of Tennessee will be improved climate, a better environment, and increased jobs for Tennessee. This is why I support the Green New Deal. Because as we support our environment, we ensure that the planet will be here for my grandchildren and for your grandchildren. This is why I support the Green New Deal. Okay, uh, James, you're up next. The Department of Defense has called climate change one of the greatest threats to our national security. And I agree. It's climate change deniers that say we have to choose between creating jobs and protecting our environment. That is a false choice. We can do both. With Oak Ridge National Labs right here in Tennessee, we have evidence that Americans have the ingenuity and the capacity to solve big problems, but we can't do it when one political party is dedicated to denying the existence of the problem. We can create a clean energy future, create jobs and protect the environment, but it's not gonna happen by electing people like Bill Haggerty who deny scientific realities. Tennessee is well positioned to help lead the way in realizing a clean energy future that could become the basis of our next economic boom. Thanks. Um, I think uh, I think we have time for one more question, and we haven't talked about foreign policy yet. So, um, do you support reengaging with the Iran nuclear deal? And uh, what other changes to U.S. foreign policy would you um, push for in the Senate? And uh, we'll start with Marquita. When you talk about foreign policy, you have to talk about stabilizing communities, not only here in America, but across the, the, the world with healthy and safe communities. The environment is not only a national security issue for the United States. It is also one of the driving factors of why we're having so many problems around the world when it comes to pollution in the environment and how it drives immigration how it drives economies that don't work because of what's going on in an environment. 
we have to be the leaders in the world. We cannot continue to pull out of the organizations like the World Health Organization and other organizations that are making the decisions around the world to, make, to work better. And we have to be that leader for democracy and also for our communities, not just here, but our world communities and our neighbors that are in, throughout the world. Okay. Um, Robin, uh, do you support uh, re-engaging with the Iran nuclear deal and uh, what other changes to U.S. foreign policy would you push for? I do support this joining back in because it shows that we're a collaborative force in the world. I think Donald Trump has really hurt our relationships with a lot of foreign governments around the country because he's withdrawn us from opportunities to collaborate and work on world issues. When COVID-19 hit, um, these relationships became very important. And there, was a, a, there, were, there were steps to try to re repair these uh, relationships, but it really caused harm to the American people. My foreign policy philosophy will be to work together, to work in collaboration, and to seek out opportunities to make peace and not war. I believe that the United States um, puts, uh, Donald Trump has put over $763 billion into the military when this money could be used um, in other social services around the around for, for, for domestic um, issues like healthcare, uh, like education like legal service programs and like programs who will help people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol. So I would address the budget issues and I would join in more collaborative efforts to work with world powers. James, uh, do you support re-engaging with the Iran nuclear, nuclear deal and what other changes to foreign policy would you push for? Iran is the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. It's clear that they've tried to develop weapons of mass destruction. They've threatened to destroy Israel as well as the United States. I've deployed to combat. I know the value of our allies. And right now, our allies don't know whether they can count on us to stand by their side as we fight our common enemies. It is vital that our nations stand together to prevent Iran from obtaining nuclear weapons. We need to thwart Iranian sponsorship of terrorism. We need to roll back Iranian designs of attaining hegemony against Israel. Iran must not be permitted to establish a permanent military presence in Syria or install like-minded regimes throughout the region. Iran's continued ballistic missile testing has to be met with robust economic sanctions. Together, as nations that place a high value on human rights, we should stand with the Iranian people against a hostile regime that promotes the sub subjugation of women. This must be done in conjunction with our alliances and our allies. Our allies and partnerships around the world have helped to enhance national security. We know that those steadfast relationships make us safer when our allies know that we'll stand by their side as we fight our common enemies. That, with true diplomacy, makes us safer by avoiding conflicts, shortening our engagements, enabling us to make peace sooner. Uh, you know, I wrote an op-ed recently on Memorial Day and we, we uphold our uh, we uphold the memories of our fallen brothers and sisters in arms 
by supporting our allies. And we're strongest when we bring all of our forces to bear. When those are neglected or worse, we're made more vulnerable. And Mark, we'll, we'll go to you last. Thank you. Um, this answer actually flows from the previous answer to the previous question. We are now no longer dependent on the Middle East for our economy, structure, or for fossil fuels. As we reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, the need for us to waste treasure and lives and limbs in the Middle East goes down, and that's a good thing. I, I believe that we should bring our forces home, our ground and air forces home from these never-ending wars. We have been in Afghanistan so long, we can't even remember when it started. We have soldiers fighting in Afghanistan who weren't born when we started that war. Um, and so from my perspective, we need to stop the never-ending wars. We don't have the money anymore to spend trillions and trillions of dollars wasting it in the desert. And so one of the things that I think is important is to recognize that this country, the United States of America, no longer has a dependency for its economy or for anything else on the countries of the Middle East, and we need to act like it. With regard to the, new, uh, to the, the deal that you refer to, that was a deal that could not be a treaty and could never become the law of the United States. And so one president can say, let's do A, and then another president comes in and says, let's do B, and that doesn't provide stable, consistent, predictable relations with other countries. We do have the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which should be the basis for our interactions with Iran. It is, Iran is a dangerous country, and we should absolutely treat them as the enemy that they are. However, the way that you do it is through the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, making sure that the seas remain open and reducing your dependence on fossil fuels, in particularly petroleum. And we cannot say that our, the ally Saudi Arabia is an ally of ours. Saudi Arabia's values, conduct, treatment of their people, threat to the region is an incredibly great threat, and we need to act like it. And we need to recognize that our values and Saudi Arabia's values are not consistent with one another, and that we no longer require their oil. And so now that we're no longer dependent on them, and now that we don't have any shared values with them, we should act like it. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, so now you'll have two minutes for a closing statement, um, and we're going to stick with Mark. So if you have a closing statement. Well, for starters, I'd like to thank uh, the sponsors, Indivisible, as well as the Holler and Stephen for conducting this. I want to thank the other candidates. I love what you're doing. I love seeing what you're doing. Um, I, I look at this as a team, and I like our team. So. Um, I hope that people who will listen to us and decide who they think will be the best standard bearer for us to go up against the Republicans in November. And as you consider that, I hope that you look, to look at each of the four of us as well as the fifth candidate and make your decision about who will be and who will have the best chance to beat the Republicans in November. And most importantly, try to figure out how to actually solve problems, because that is really what politics should be about for all of us. It's certainly what I'm about. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Uh, James, a closing statement. Thank you again for having me here for tonight's discussion. There's too much at stake to lose sight of what we're fighting for in this election. On issue after issue, Washington is failing Tennessee. Our hospitals are closing, opioids aren't being addressed, and the trade war hurts our economy more than any other state. And in COVID-19, you can see a perfect storm 
gathering across Tennessee. People want change and we can win this open U.S. Senate seat if we seize the initiative. Our choice this year is to send another Marsha Blackburn to the Senate, and that is exactly what Bill Haggerty has promised to be, or we can make a change. It is exhausting to hear the things Marsha Blackburn says representing Tennessee on Fox News every day. Governor Bredesen got 44% last cycle. That means we need 6% more in a presidential year at a time when things aren't getting better in Tennessee, and we can make it happen. I got in this race early because there's a lot of work to do to get those six more points. My campaign is and always has been about meeting Tennesseans where they live and listening to what they need but aren't getting from Washington. I'm so honored that people like leader Karen Camper and Governor Bredesen have endorsed my campaign. I'm so proud that individual grassroots donors in all 95 counties have heard my message and have personally invested in my campaign and in sending better leadership to Washington. Tennessee firefighters, Planned Parenthood Action Fund, NARAL, Vote Vets, Serve America, Gabby Giffords, Let America Vote, and Citizens United, and yes, the DSCC have all joined our team. I'm a different kind of candidate. I'm an outsider, a veteran, and a man of faith. My track record of service appeals to voters across Tennessee, and we're building the team and raising the money to make sure that story is told. This is an uphill battle. We need everyone pitching in to change this state and flip the U.S. Senate. So go to jamesmackler.com, sign up, volunteer, talk about the race on social media, donate what you can. We will win this open U.S. Senate seat if everyone wanting change joins the team to make it happen. Again, thank you. Thanks, uh, Robin. Closing statement? Leadership should advocate for democracy, equality, liberty, and justice. Our Republican Senate has chipped away at the foundation of these qualities. I got in this race because in the words of Fannie Lou Hamer, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm running for United States Senate because I wanna change the culture of our nation. And we have seen with COVID-19 and with the murders of Ahmaud Aubrey and George Floyd, that we need a change in our nation. And we have seen with the protests and the riots that there are people that are crying out for change. I am your answer for change. And for us to flip this seat in November, we're going to need someone who can energize and motivate the voters to believe again, to believe in democracy again, to believe in the rule of law again, and to believe in our government again. This is why I'm running for United States Senate, because I believe I can bring the party together. I believe I can bring Tennessee together. I believe we can be that one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Come join my team, robinforsenate.com. Chip in, volunteer, get a yard sign and share my passion for Tennessee. Thanks, uh, Marquita, we'll, we'll go to you for the, the last closing statement. When I looked across the field, when I decided to declare my candidacy last year, 
I wanted to know who was going to represent my community and what we had experienced. Who was going to fight for the health care we needed? Who was going to fight for the education we needed? Who was going to fight for the economy that would work for hardworking families? Like the families that I saw every day, not just in my community in Memphis, but my family members across the whole state. Who was going to fight for, for us? Who was talking about the issues that were affecting Black women? Who was affect, Who was talking about the issues about the environment? Who was going to champion those? And when I did the research, it was blank. And that's what made me get in this race. Because I knew that it was going to take a different kind of candidate with a message that would resonate with all Americans for healthy and safe communities where they live, learn, work, worship, and recreate. Building up our pillars of education, having an environment with a just transition away from pollution, an economy that works for working people, that has health care, that goes beyond just having a, a living wage to move into a sustainable wage where people can be energy secure, housing secure, food secure every day of the year. Now, when you look across the board, I'm addressing the issues. I'm hardworking. People will be able to identify with another hardworking person that has crisscrossed this state since I declared my candidacy. And there are small donors across Tennessee from Sweetwater, Johnson, all the way to Johnson City that have been investing in this campaign for hardworking families to have a true voice in the U.S. Senate and stop experiencing that disconnect. It will be the organizing skill that will include people in this process and keep them connected. Thank, thank you, Marquita. And thank you to all four of you for, for being here. And thank you for to Indivisible for, for hosting and the holler for streaming. And um, the primary is August 6th. Um, so thanks, thanks to everyone. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you, Marquita and James and Mark. Good. It's good to see y'all. Be well. Be safe. <laughs>